Survival chances out of 10. Presumably it's 1 out of 10, 2 out of 10. Minimal. Zero. Well, when you just leave, then you're going to go down or not, rather than okay, the okay, okay, marking okay. system of 1 to 10. It's just confused, just muddy in the water. Subscribe now to the OTB Football Podcast stream wherever you get your podcasts and download the OTB Sports app. Now, you're very welcome along to the Sunday paper review. John Malloy with you going through uh, the papers this afternoon. I'll start with the various headlines. So, as you might imagine, Sunday Times have Mo Salah here, who is enjoying life, it's fair to say. Sublime Salah scores another wonder goal as Liverpool thrash Ranieri's Watford, and he's pretty happy with himself. Uh, beneath that, Pogba, we deserve to lose and have to change. That's Jonathan Northcroft. Pogba's across a lot of the back pages. And then, interesting story here, Paul Rowan, FAI going ahead with World Cup bid for 2030. So the FAI is to press ahead with a joint bid with the UK for associations for a 2030 World Cup, despite reports that UEFA have gone cold on the proposal. We might come back to that in one second. Uh, Sunday World again going with Pogba. It's uh, Ole Gunnar Solskjaer with his uh, hands spread out, shrugging his shoulders, red, red woe. Is it all over for Ole and United? And then beneath that red glow, uh, Klopp, Salah's the best in the world, which I think is probably fair enough comment at the moment. Sunday Mirror then has uh, Mo Salah. Deal or Mo Deal? So back page here of the Mirror saying that Mo Salah's agent flew into England yesterday, fueling speculation of further talks over a new £500,000 a week deal. I would suspect that's going up about fifty grand a week at the moment, the way he's playing. So they probably just want to get this thing done, Liverpool. Uh, the Sun then, picture of Pogba, picture of Salskjaer, Pog attack. I'm not sure now is this what Pogba was trying to do, but it's certainly the way the papers have interpreted it. Paul Pogba uh, piled the pressure on Ole Gunnar Salskjaer by insisting we deserve to lose. We need to make a change, is what he said. But I don't really think he was essentially saying sack the manager publicly like that, but that's how it's going down. Uh, Sunday, independent picture of Joey Carberry last night at Thomond Park against Connacht. Carberry delivers last uh, second kick to win the game. Joey goes from villain to hero as Munster leave it late to see off Connacht. The uh, villain part, if you didn't see the game, he had a kick blocked down by Jack Cardy late on, which gave Connacht the try and had them in front. But then he did kick the winning conversion. And then beneath that again, it's Pogba. Pogba criticism piles pressure on Solskjaer. Again, Pogba, we need to change after that 4-2 defeat being interpreted as a dig or a slide at Solskjaer in some measure. And then the mail on Sunday, it's that Salah goal. I mean, it was just glorious, wasn't it? <laughs> Wonder goal uh, shows Mo is best in the world. And then the big headline is Pogba, we can't go on like this. So there are the back pages of the papers. Very happy to say. John Brennan of the Sunday World here in the studio. Hey, John. Hey, Joe. How are you? Great to have you in. And Gavin Cooney of the 42 is with us as well. Gav, great to have you on. Morning, Joe. So, uh, John, you were just, uh, this caught your eye, that story I mentioned on the front page of the Sunday Times, FAI going ahead with a World Cup bid for 2030. Uh, this, despite, according to Ian Mallon, who was a former FAI director of communications, also worked as a consultant for UEFA. He reported that UEFA preferred uh, a bid made by Spain and Portugal and wanted the UK and Ireland instead to go for uh, the Euros in 2028, but were pushing on with World Cup 2030, it seems. Yeah, it's... The English FA, the FAI are just an attachment to this. It's just the English FA's complete inability to read the room. They've made this mistake several times with World Cup bids and we're seeing it again now. Clearly UEFA have decided the only way Europe is winning that bid for 2030 is to have a Spanish-speaking, to lead with their own Spanish-speaking bid because there's huge interest from South America. Basically every country bar Brazil who had it in 2014 wants it in 2030 
when it is the 100th anniversary of the first World Cup in Uruguay. Now, Uruguay is too small to host a World Cup, so Argentina's involved, Chile's involved, I think Bolivia and Ecuador, basically, as I said, the whole continent, bar Brazil, and it wouldn't surprise me if they came in in the end as well. Um, so UEFA have obviously decided uh, this England bid with us attached and Scotland and Wales and Northern Ireland is not going to work it's got to be Spain and Portugal and they're only backing one bid they won't let two go forward and they have thrown out the carrot of we will leave you clear for Euro 2028 which has already been half agreed with the Germans who got the English to stand down so that they could have a clear run at 2024 so the Germans are on side, the English are on side, now it seems the whole of UEFA is on side. So the European Championship in 2028 is out there like a ripe pear to be plucked if they want to go for it. Now they're saying, oh no, we want to go for the World Cup. But surely someone will advise the English FA that don't bid again and get one vote as they did for 2018. Mm. So uh, I think that kind of is quite a significant... Uh, hammer blow to the idea of the World Cup being here in 2020-30 but it could lead to the Euros turning up eight years later or was it seven years later technically but anyway eight they were supposed to be here in 2020 so they could be here in 2028 Okay Gav the other big story in the back page is either Mo Salah or Paul Pogba did you interpret Pogba Gav saying we need a change as being about the manager yesterday? No, I don't think he. I don't think he's bold enough to come out and say that, Joe. I think it's a change in. Uh, but he also knows what he's saying. It's a change in approach um, by which we're all to uh, to kind of t- take uh, take that uh, take those words to their logical end. I didn't uh, perceive that, but I think it is him putting a little bit of pressure on his own manager, and that's how it'll be perceived. We go back to Roy Keane talking to Gary Neville a couple of weeks ago saying that perception is reality and uh, that's Solskjaer's reality at the moment. And I also, Joe, had to laugh at um, at Pogba saying that United had to become a little bit more arrogant. Um, their arrogance is the problem mm, yes. at the moment. The reason Solskjaer is the manager is because they believe in the exceptionalism of their own past and of their own history. Uh, they need to get away from that and need to be a little bit more humble and realise that the game has moved on and United still have a lot of catching up to do. Yeah, I suppose the interesting question, John. Solskjaer in some respects has done, many respects, done a very good job over the last couple of years. It's starting to butt his head off a ceiling now, it feels. Yeah, I, I disagree with you. I don't think he has. He's been two full years, more than two full seasons. He's now actually been in his fourth season as the manager. He had a half a season, now he's had another bit of a season. Are they any better than they were under Mourinho? Yes. Who had them to watch, maybe? Results? No. Mourinho led them to three trophies. Solskjaer has won absolutely nothing. My take on Solskjaer since the day he got it, and it's still relevant today, if Bayern Munich and Real Madrid or Juventus needed a coach in the morning, if the French or German national teams needed a coach in the morning, if the English national team needed a coach in the morning, would his CV get him the job? His CV now includes four bits of seasons and two full seasons with Manchester United, with all their resources, with all their everything, with no trophy. You wonder the way they bought Ronaldo, is he really, really in charge? Did someone go to him and say, by the way, we can shift a million shorts if we sign Ronaldo? Mm. Like, they needed a defensive midfielder. They needed Kante. Now, before you say Chelsea wouldn't sell, blah, let's get away from that. They needed to find an N'Golo Kante. They needed to find a defensive midfielder who could sit in front of their back four, which they had strengthened with Raphael Varane and protected. Nemanja Matic was let go by Chelsea five years ago because he was too slow. What's he still doing protecting Manchester United back four five years later? Yeah. 
Well, there is. I mean, Gav, when you looked at Pogba, Madic as a two and then Sancho, Fernandez, Greenwood and Ronaldo up front, you did say, well, best to look back for. Mm, nah, they're in rag order, that team. Like, And Solskjaer even said after the game that they have to look at the balance of the team. Yeah. Mm. Um, and But it, I kind of f- feel a little bit sorry for him, to be honest, Joe. Like He was given a new contract and United evidently uh, endorsed the piecemeal way he was building a team up until the start of this season. And then they gave him Ronaldo and told her, actually, that team building that we did support, maybe try something different mm. and facilitate Ronaldo and the team now. So he's on a hiding to nothing. And I, I think it's coming to a, a slow and ugly end. Yeah, it does feel that way. So uh, let's jump in. I think the papers across the board are brilliant today. There's just loads of great mm. stuff. We're not going to get to it all. We might start with Life magazine. Gav, I know you like to start your morning with Life magazine regardless, <laughs> but especially so uh, this morning. It's Keith Earls on the front and the headline is Pain Ruined My Life. I Came to Hate Rugby. And inside is a brilliant interview. I know he was excellent on the Late Late Show as well on Friday evening. So uh, this is an interview with uh, Life magazine, and it's a really good piece. So he starts, he's doing it in his uh, daughter's room because it's the only room he can get some quiet in. He's doing it over uh, Zoom. And he starts off initially talking about what his body went through. Later on, he talks about his mental health. But uh, there was an extract yesterday in the Irish Times which dealt with this issue. It seemed like he was just in horrific pain. Uh, right through some peak years of his as well, like through, you know, 17 through to kind of 20 territory when Ireland were winning Grand Slams. In part, his liver was uh, floating and putting pressure on his breathing. And so one day they strapped him up and that was a bit of a breakthrough when that actually worked and he could breathe properly. But he was talking about that period, that two, three years when in effect he was in agony and all parts of his body were in agony. I dreaded training, came to hate rugby, Uh, It was my back, it was my neck, it was my groin, it was my hernia, a bit of everything. I had huge problems breathing as well. That was the liver situation, which they did sort out in the end. He talked about how he put physios under an awful lot of pressure, stuff like getting acupuncture at half time during a game when I'm breathing out through my arse. There'd be needles in my neck trying to free up whatever pain was there. And he effectively retired. Now he's hoping for another two years with the province, although he does uh, accept, John, that his post-playing life is going to be riddled with pain. Yeah, it's it's it was incredibly moving to read those words to see him on on uh, Friday night. He um, looking back on it, um, our Sunday World writer Mick Galway would always be been very close to Keith Earls for obvious reasons. He would have been very close to his dad, Jer, as well. Yeah. Um, and looking back on it, we were always saying Keith didn't win the number of caps he should have. He was left out of one Lions tour right on the cusp, and we're looking back and saying. Was all that related to this? Like, was all this going on in the background? And you must accept from Keith's words that it was. Mm. That they're the reasons he doesn't have far more Irish caps than he has. That they're the reasons he missed out on two Lions tours. That his life was just in turmoil. And the most moving bit for me is the bit where he describes sitting in front of a whiteboard doing the X's and O's of of how we're going to get Keith free for um, a try. And he not being able to follow what Joe Schmidt would be telling him or Andy Farrell would be telling him on the X's and O's on the whiteboard. The minute they got out on the pitch and the move came up and Gary Ringrose is going to slip you in, then he was fine, he was away. He knew exactly what was going on, but he just couldn't follow the whiteboard. His mind was so scrambled. Like yeah. it's, it's very rare a sportsman comes out with that sort of thing. Now, he said, he did he, sorry, he didn't say, did he intimate that he kept it all very quiet until yes. one day he went to Aina Falvey, who was then the Irish team doctor who got him help, uh, real professional help for what he needed. And, 
You'd wonder, did the lads know? Did he keep it secret from the lads for a long time? He seems to have. Yeah. So which... on his mental health, um, he talks about Hank, who's his alter ego. He's, <laughs> yeah. he's, he's taken that from me, myself and Irene. And uh, so it's John Marr here with the interview. Uh, Hank to Earls' mind is the part of him that's prone to severe bouts of depression. And he talks about just the toll everything has taken on him. Like, it's hard to deduce when he's complaining to his wife Adele here they've been going out since they were 13 is it about the injury or is it about the mental health situation but he says it got to a point that I was complaining so much to Adele that she got annoyed unbelievably annoyed because I was just draining her I wouldn't have been one bit surprised if she had left me being the person she was she helped me get through it he says he's in a better place now he's undergone psychotherapy sessions he's been prescribed antidepression medication he says I'm still taking tablets to help balance out the chemicals in my brain I've no doubt that when I retire I'll be able to come off them and I'll be able to manage better because I've dug deep. I've found myself as well. I know when Keith is in my head and I know when Hank is in my head and I know how to get out of depression quicker. And on Friday, he did talk about his bipolar diagnosis and how relieved he was to get that diagnosis. Interesting point here, Gav. So he's written this book with Tommy Conlon. That's the uh, reason for the publicity over the last couple of days and the interviews. He says of this mental health uh, fight that he has had on his hands, I'm embarrassed to speak about it. I know I shouldn't be embarrassed, but I am. And yet my embarrassment is smaller than how it might help other people. It's extraordinary, even as open as he is, he feels queasy talking about this. Yeah, it's just Joe emphasises that contradiction of the environment of professional sports isn't uh, amenable to showing vulnerability and talking about these things. Yet so many elite sports people have been brave and have talked about these things and showed vulnerability in the public and have helped people so immeasurably. So evidently that that environment has to change within elite sports. And you can see elite sports people doing so much to change the environment outside that bubble. Um, you see this, and we'll get onto it later, the interview that Aidan O'Mahony has done today in the in the Sunday Indo. So, um, yeah, that's that's quite that's quite shocking. And just to emphasise what, what John was talking about there, did he uh, did his teammates know, he, he talks about in this interview, was it, that they didn't really, and that the pain both mental and physical, was getting so bad that was I losing the respect of my teammates because I wasn't doing the training? Did they think I was lazy? Which is a, it just goes to emphasise just how incompatible sometimes uh, elite sports uh, environments are with uh, with feeling healthy and feeling well. And the, the other thing that struck me about his talk about health here is how he fuses mental health and physical health. I, I, sometimes they're often talked um, uh, in separation to each other, and I don't think that's right. And he says that he talks about this horrendous back injury that he had that he mm. uh, that made him get to the point where he was uh, considering to uh, quitting rugby. And he says the physical pain I was in was definitely adding to it. That's the mental turmoil or causing it. It's hard to know which, but it was a very difficult time when my physical and mental sides were in a bad way. So I have to say, like, rugby autobiographies are fairly uh, diminished and damaged genre in recent yeah. years, but I'm really looking forward, between Willie Anderson's book with Brendan Fanning and Tommy Conlon's work with Keith Earls on this, I'm, I'm really looking forward to this coming out. Yeah, couldn't agree more. I mean, he was always an extraordinarily interesting interview, and I don't think he particularly enjoyed them, but any time I spoke to him, I found he had a real presence, like there was an intensity to him, and I always felt there was a lot on his mind and there was a lot going on with him and in the main he was pretty open but we didn't know the half not, of it and not it, that it, open. no it no. turns out there was a lot more going he, on he than was we, more we open knew. about his background of course my ross and all like that he was um yeah. always open about that <clears throat> excuse me always very proud of it but he was um 
never about this stuff until now. He does say about his uh, father, it's a very, very interesting part of this chat with John Mayer as well. So his father, Jer, obviously iconic, but young Munster and in 92, part of that team that beat Australia. So he never got called up for Ireland. Keith Earls says here he didn't have the right background. He was from what was considered to be a poor part of Limerick. And back then that went against you. And he didn't look like the sort of fellow who'd be playing for Ireland. He had a couple of tattoos and he had the accent, but he was the same as myself, a really shy fella. I'm probably more bitter for him now than he is about it. He doesn't like to talk about it. What's it they say? They have 93 caps between them or something, isn't it? Yeah. Yeah, it, it is. It's a, He was probably one of the best flankers in Ireland at the time and just didn't get the call. That happened in rugby at the time a bit. And do you remember, was there a big call at the time? Oh, he was, yeah. Like, he was part of the team that beat, Munster, or beat Australia in yeah. Munster's colours. And he was always very close. And every time the squad would come out, someone else would get, when they needed a, a flanker, someone else would get the call. Right. And uh, there was always a bit of that. There was players going back years, like there was the great Leo Galvin, who played for Atlone years ago. Fantastic number eight, but he didn't play for the right club. Atlone, like, yeah. never got a cap. Played for Ireland against Argentina, but it wasn't a cap match. So he did play for Ireland, but doesn't have a cap. Right. And do you remember outcry over someone like Ger Earls, for instance? Was it a big talking point? Or was oh, it, it would have been, yeah. You'd like It's like it is now when the Irish squad comes out now. It, uh, well, the way the Irish squad comes out now is, of course, 40 people are chosen, or 50. Yeah. And it's very hard to leave anyone out of 50. And then they make the cut. Ah, well, Joe Malloy just didn't make the cut. You and do, know? do you remember people saying, this is because... Jer Earls is from Moy Ross. And young Munster, who... Was that being said? Uh, there was a, yeah, and oh. there was a bit of... Uh, until Paul O'Connell came along, young Munster were kind of the wide boys of Limerick rugby. They were out, out on the fringe. Right. They weren't Gary Owen, they weren't Shannon. Right. And uh, O'Connell changed that pretty quick, all right. They, they take Mun- young Munster seriously from when he arrived. But, mm. uh, of course, the club rugby thing has gone to you-know-what now. And it's, uh, well, that's a different story. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> So, uh, and it just, yeah, sorry, sorry to Gav. jump in, Joe, no, jump but in, it just, emph- just emphasises the chronic lack of diversity in terms of how people pathways into the Irish rugby team. And this is still a problem now. Like I was, Bernard Jackman was interesting on a 42's rugby podcast this week to say that, you know, it's so hard, like because sub-academy players contracted to Leinster, like the money isn't that great. Like you need to be able to live at home and so on. Like I need the support of that, of a fairly wealthy family to get through it. And you do wonder if that lack of diversity is actually hurting Ireland on the pitch. Like, I don't think it's a coincidence that Keith Earls is one of the better, uh, more improvisational rugby players we have and one of the better finishers because their skill set is learned in different environments. And it just, it's what Peter O'Reilly touches on in his piece in the Sunday Times saying that Tyg Furlong should be the next Irish rugby captain. He, he, t- he quotes uh, Stuart Lancaster from 2018 to saying that that the Irish rugby players, James Ryan being the uh, uh, being the uh, best encapsulation of it, you know, come through the school system and they're extremely uh, well coached and their nutrition is right and their sleep is right, um, but they can be over coached. And Lancaster says and said in 2018, what I found over here is a lot of the players are quiet and they're detail oriented, um, but they lack that vocal leadership and maybe that a little bit of that improvisational quality that that Keith Earls has. So you do wonder. I do think it's still a problem for the Irish rugby team. I'm not, you know, I, I don't watch them in any great depth, unfortunately, but just from kind of um, my hurler on a ditch remove here, I do think that there is uh, there is that lack of diversity there. Yeah. Well, there there is because we famously haven't hit the glass ceiling of uh, the World Cup semi-final. We cannot qualify for the last four of a competition in which, let's face it, there are nine serious teams how many goals have we had in the eight or nine World Cups? Haven't done it. The next World Cup to do it, we're going to have to beat New Zealand or France. 
in France. Mm. So the odds are it's going to be 10 World Cups in a row or whatever it is. So the pick, the pick is just too small. And you've got to be too big a man now. When, when I started covering rugby long, long time ago, wingers were five foot seven. They were the size of Shane Williams. Mm. Wing, wingers are now the size of Shane Horgan and bigger. And uh, we just don't have the pick because we play Gaelic football and hurling. We play soccer. We're world leaders in equine sport. We play golf. We're good at all sorts of sports. And we just do not have the pick. And what Gavin is talking about, rugby spreading at wings, it it has certainly, yes, over the last 20 years, but it has to go again. It has to get out there and be an albatross. Yeah. Uh, one last kind of interesting thing on Earl. So he uh, his visualisation work is done with Keith Barry, who Earl says... He's not just a magician, uh, he's a life coach, he's done a lot of work in the brain, so he says, you can go to all the sports psychologists in the world, but they didn't click with me like Keith did. I don't want people to think, okay, Keith Barry hypnotised him. It was nothing like that. I was at the end of my tether with everything. I approached him, we sat down, did an unbelievable session. And uh, he says, Joe Schmidt was big on the mind too. When you do your reps in your head, your body doesn't know if you're doing it physically or mentally. It's still hitting the same neuropaths. So uh, there's loads of great stuff from Keith Earls over the entire weekend I suspect this book is going to be a doozy everything about it has just been fascinating so far so there he is with John Maher in Life magazine and the Sunday Independent interestingly as opposed to uh, sports section special congress next Saturday gets a lot of attention here this is going to be divisive I would think so Joe Brawley for instance on page 10 of the Sunday Independent, not a fan of any of the proposals, A or B, interestingly. Colin O'Rourke right beside him is leaning towards B, although Colin O'Rourke, like quite a few people, is slightly dismayed at the GEA taking effectively no stance in this debate. He talks about, you know, a company has to have a top brass, like chief chief executive like Tom Ryan, and the lead should come from the top. So he says the biggest single decision in football championship history is to be taken next Saturday and as of yet I have not read or heard any comment from either the President Larry McCarthy or from Tom Ryan. This is a time in history for the GA to ditch the baggage of the past and to take on a new meaning but it's been left to the ordinary members without any leadership. Both of our top men should articulate their views one way or another and then let the majority decide. The idea that our leaders should stand back from big decisions is nonsense. It's their job to lead. Imagine letting workers of a business tell the boss how to run it. It's a recipe for chaos. He says, uh, next Saturday is a very big day. Hopefully all club members have familiarised themselves with what's proposed. And he goes on to say, one thing is for sure. Any county in the bottom 16 that votes against this proposal deserves to be left in outer darkness for all time, as it's the first occasion they have been uh, given hope. So that's uh, Colm O'Rourke's take in the Sunday Independent. Joe Brawley beside him. I mean, he starts off in good fashion. Option A, fire the four crap counties from Leinster and Ulster into Munster and Connacht. Nobody gives a damn about Fermanagh or Antrim or Carlow or Westmeath anyway. Each artificial province of eight teams will then have two groups of four for Ren Robin Frey's. Under uh, this option, if Antrim were bottom seeds in Ulster, they'd end up in Connacht playing Mayo and Roscommon and Leitrim, meaning Antrim Gales would have to travel a minimum of a 300-mile round trip for the away games. Such casual, gross disrespect. So... He hates option A. Second option, slightly better. However, delegates at special congress should resist the temptation to go for it. And he hates the Talchin Cup. It's a terrible name that underlines second-class citizenship, he says. And he hates the fact that the 
provincial championship will have no link to the All-Irelands. He said it's going to become like the FBD League in Connacht or the Ulster Championship will be like the McKenna Cup. And he talks about the importance of provincial championships, especially in uh, Ulster. And uh, he says as well that another massive issue is that in Proposal B, that there are no guarantees of respect for the new second tier. So he's talking about, you know, linking the matches to say the the final of the Sam Maguire or you know certain guarantees for TV coverage or certain guarantees for where these matches are on in conjunction with bigger games he says without these it will quickly become an anticlimax another Tommy Murphy in which uh, case teams will quickly lose interest I'll go to America for the summer instead we'll pull out just like we did with the Tommy Murphy so uh, he goes on to talk about uh, what he calls the um, Jim McGuinness or Sean Kelly proposals where there is a stronger link with uh, cham- provincial championships and uh, Sam Maguire and the Potty or Shea Cup as he builds it but uh, he doesn't like either of them so uh, that's a strong voice coming out against uh, B as well as A John I don't know what way you think this is going to go next week I'm starting to uh, think uh, this, we're, we're, we're leaning towards status quo we're, well not even status quo we're heading back to 2017 because the round robins are off the table now but they're not going ahead again so what we're going to have I think at the end of it is an All-Ireland knockout quarter final with uh, the four provincial winners and the four teams who survive in the qualifiers. And that's what we're going to have. Mm. I'm not sure about Column's assertion that the teams in the bottom 16, is it Column said that, have to vote for this. They don't. Antrim won't vote for it for sure, because if they do, it's the end of Casements Park redevelopment. The whole raison d'etre of Casement Park is to stage Ulster semi-finals and finals in the middle of July in front of 30,000 people. Uh, you'll get 2,000 people for an Ulster final in the end of February if there's nothing at stake so like why why spend all the money redevelopment casement so Antrim won't vote for it for sure uh, I feel all of Ulster will vote against it <coughs> excuse me because um, they value their provincial championship above the others I I think we're heading back to the status quo yeah. another option that was apparently never considered is the one floated by my colleague Sean McGoldrick years ago which is to split the year in half Play championship hurling in the inter-county championship hurling in the first half of the year. Play league hurling, which are clubs, and championship football, which are clubs. And then switch it round in the second half of the year. Now, maybe stop at the end of November or something like that. But that gives every club player a guaranteed uh, programme for the summer and keeps the GA in the limelight all the year. The big thing for next year that no one is commenting on, because it's not part of these actual proposals, is that the All-Ireland Hurling Final is going to be played on the third Sunday of July and the football on the last. And that's it. And that's over. Mm. The whole the whole second half of the year is going to be devoid of inter-county GA. They are basically giving up their entire shop window to bail out incompetent administrations in other counties who can't put on their uh, club programmes, whereas counties like Dublin, Kerry, Tyrone... Cork never seem to have a problem putting on their club programmes yeah. under the old system. I don't think option B. Option B has two huge weak links. One, unlike in the hurling, if you win a cup, you go up at the moment. You're guaranteed promotion. So if you win the Christie Ring, you're up to the Joe McDonough. If you win the Joe McDonough, you're up to the All-Ireland. Doesn't apply in this system. If you win the Talton Cup, you're not up. The other weakness is the sixth best team in Ireland doesn't get to play for the Sam Maguire Cup, but the 17th and 25th do. Riddle me that. The reason, of course, is every time you survey the players, the players say, we want to start the season with a faint, 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 faint chance of winning the All-Ireland. They are not willing to accept any structure 
that puts your Waterfords or your Carlos or your Leitrims straight into a Talton Cup type situation. In other words, under Proposal B, yes, they can still win a Connacht or Ulster or Leinster or Munster and they can still technically win the All-Ireland. They tick those two boxes. Imagine next year if Dublin finished sixth in Division 1 of the league. But then they don't deserve to qualify. True, but... <laughs> but like, I think if you finish sixth in Division 1, you've had your crack... You haven't made it. Yeah, but You've why does seven the, games. But why does Thank the team who finished twenty fifth get through? Uh, because I think there's an, an effort to try and include them in the Sam Maguire as well, whereby they're not cut out of it from the off. So there's a there's a chance whereby if you do well in Division Four, you do well, do well in Division Three, then you deserve your big day out. You deserve your crack at the big boys. There's a, there's a there's a degree of equality about that. There's a degree of saying we're not just forgetting about you. You you do well at your level. Yeah. You're going to have a crack. We're at the big getting boys. away from the elitism of the round robins now. You see, we've we've had the round robins whereby the best in theory, the best eight teams yeah. in a given year got into the round robins and played each other regularly. Yeah. The big issue that the GA is, is has to face up to is that the last decade has been about four counties: yeah. Dublin, Tyrone, Kerry, and Mayo, with the occasional interruption from Donegal, Monaghan, Galway to a lesser extent. Yeah. And that's it. Like, it's never been fair. Dublin and Kerry have won half the All-Ireland football titles that have ever been played. Mm -hmm. No one ever said this is fair. And this seems to be the whole thing of this, to make it fair. It's not fair. It won't be fair. It never will be fair while the 30,000 people of Longford are supposed to compete with Cork, Mm -hmm. while the 28,000 people of Leitrim are supposed to compete with Dublin. Is there not something fairer? Because here's the thing, by the way. I mean, if I meet one more person who on the back of a pub mat gives me their championship structure, <laughs> yeah. I mean, this should be banned from every... I'd like, I mean, I'd, I'd sooner uh, listen to you talk... Uh, we'll listen go back to talk the, I'd listen to you talk about your golf game before I listen to this. <laughs> well, we'll, go, we'll, go, back to, we'll so, go back to Gavin Riley doing the counts at the election. It's, but, it's almost as bad. But the, but, but the point is, I could pick holes in any structure you want oh, yeah. me. So is this not better where, whereby the Leitrams and the Longfords and the Antrims that you talk about, they get their seven matches against... Uh, equal opponents equal opponents so I mean provincial grounds around the country height of summer you go you watch these matches the community get on board they get to see the team more often and then if you do really well and it's a possibility against teams of a similar standard then you get your big day out because you deserve it now you might get a hiding from a division 2 team but you're like that's happening anyway to Leitrim against Mayo and Connacht so at least this way in the summer months your county gets seven games that they have a crack at winning them all yeah. or losing them all. Well, well, there's one, and then you get a reward or you don't. Is yeah, that not fair enough? There's a little bit of fair. There is a, an element of fairness. The other side of that is to say, by any other sport, a league mm. involves you playing every team home and away. Yeah, well, it's four home, three away, and yeah, vice versa. Which is a huge difference. Huge. It, the teams with four home games have a massive yeah, advantage. Yeah, I presume they'll get three the following year. If they're still in the division, because the, the two up, two down will sure. still apply. But you see, again... And to Colin O'Rourke's point, nobody said, we're unveiling these proposals, they're all perfect in every way. They're not. None of them are. Yeah. Because you come back to my basic point of, we have this big four, a small tier of two or three underneath them, and the rest nowhere. Mm. Like, people give out about Dublin's dominance over the last decade and whatever. One huge reason Dublin have been dominant, apart from having great players and great managers, is that Galway, Down, Cork, Meath, have basically disappeared off the face of the earth. Let me put it to you this way. A, B or C? You're voting. Uh, and, and understand if you take C, you don't know when Special Congress gives you a chance to vote on a championship restructuring again. It could be another decade. Oh, yeah. Uh, I, I don't think either. B need, A will be run out the door. Yeah, That's gone. gone. Yeah. B has a chance. It doesn't need a majority. It needs a 60% majority. What way are you voting? 
I would vote against it. You'd take, see for, you'd take what we have for the next decade? No, what we had in 2017 mm-hmm. for the next decade, yeah. It was a better structure. Really, yeah. It, yeah, well, look back, Tipperary were in it. Limerick were in it. Clare were in it, weren't they? Under that, if you look at that structure from about 2017... How, how are they, how, how are Wexford, they not be? Well, they're not good enough. They just, but they just had their one year of, of, of thing. I just think, we, it says it in the Sunday world, if you get a loud Vitaron All-Ireland preliminary quarterfinal, the only man happy is Mickey Hart. He would love it. He would absolutely love that. Sure. But he's probably the only man in the country who would. So the only hole in B then is that the preliminary quarterfinals, those two matches, those two matches out of the entire championship may no. be a touch uneven. That's a that's a hole, yeah. That, but the next then the next round, you would bring in the team who won Division Two and Division and finished second in Division Two. You yeah. bring them in; they're guaranteed a place in the last eight. Yeah. But they're not even Division One teams. But they're guaranteed a place. But they deserve. If well, you're, a, if division, you're, a Division Two team. If you're us Common or Cavan who've been yo-yoing between the two divisions over the last couple of years, you're better off in two. Yeah. You've only to finish in the first three of a much lesser division. Yeah, but if you finish top of that division, you're promoted for the following year anyway. So you're in with Division One the following year, and you probably get knocked out of the championship. <laughs> but you might deserve to. Yep. Yeah. But you still get your seven games if you're Roscommon. Three so, at home minimum. Okay, but just for a second, Division Two. You have this great year where you win Division Two. You get promoted. You get promoted one. You get your crack at one of the big boys in Crow Park, and then the following year you're in Division One, where you might know it's going to be tough for us to be top five. But you've suddenly got Kerry, Dublin and Mayo coming to your home ground across the yeah, summer. Yeah. Sign me up. That's a great summer. Let's have a crack at them all. Yeah. It still goes back to my first issue of a big four. It's but not sure, fair. Like, no structure is going to solve a big four. No, it's not. That's the point. And I think the problem is... Sure, but, but sure, we can't solve in, that. In reaching for mm. A, B and C, people are reaching for fairness. And that's not out there at all. Are they all. not reaching for more games against teams of similar standards? So that each weekend you're going to have 28 games of teams and matches which could go either way. Whereas yeah. now what we have is Kerry hammering Cork, Mayo hammering Leitrim. That's your GEA offering for the weekend. weekend. Yeah, that's it's a problem. It's it's. I can't see A getting any consideration. No. C will will have its supporters. Yeah, just no, I, I, it's you can hear it bubbling away. <laughs> yeah, Gavin, are you still yeah. there? Yeah, are you still there? No, I'm still here. Like nothing, <laughs> nothing stirs my soul like a debate. <laughs> No. Is, is anyone still here? Is anyone still listening to me and John? Oh no! But no, look, just briefly, like, like it'd be crazy if this uh, proposal B wasn't accepted. Surely, like, obviously, it's completely imperfect, but we seem to have such a surfeit of democracy in the GAA that nothing can ever be perfect because you always have to bring everyone and all these competing interests along at the same time. Like, the current system is a complete farce. Like, what other sport would market its pr- like its premium competition, the most important competition in the sport, and teams have to play a differing number of games to win it? Like, it's nonsense. So I think you have to... Uh, you have to listen to the players. Like the players are all in favour of proposal B. I think there's an acceptance that it isn't that it isn't perfect, but nothing is perfect. Like the G, like the GA should never be forgiven for having 32 teams. Like it's the perfect number of teams <laughs> to break it into four, uh, to eight groups of four. The old Champions League style format. It's perfect for it. And then you can split it 16 and 16, and the bottom 16 goes into your Europa League slash Talchon Cup slash Polio Shea, whatever name you want to give it to it. But it hasn't happened. So there's an obvious. If I can think of that, everyone else has thought of that. So there's an obvious reason it can't happen. So. Like this thing, uh, surely this thing has to be accepted and we're on a collision course between the players and the administrators and, you know, like there, there is no game without the players and this is an imperfect, uh, this is an imperfect structure but it gives, 
it gives more players more meaningful games while also uh, feeling that they haven't been shunned mm. into second class status. So, uh, but I have to say, just to, clar- to bring it back to the papers, I was interested in Colin O'Rourke uh, lamenting the lack of leadership and, and the, mu- uh, the muteness from Croke Park on it. Michael Foley's piece in the Sunday Times kind of clarified things for me when he says that silence has been interpreted as the hierarchy pandering to the Conservatives seeking to preserve the status quo. And then he goes into the flip side of the argument as to why to retain said status quo, which I think in the uh, opinion of lots of people is not working. There's just, there's queasiness about, well, what if it doesn't work? You know, the finances are bad enough. What if what if it doesn't connect with the public? And I, you can, I'm slightly sympathetic to that feeling. Yeah, yeah. Like the GA... GA has always been governed on the, like the governing principle of the GA is like all of this could disappear at any moment, which is always which has always been a, quite a good uh, driving force behind the GA because they're constantly uh, looking inward and they're reinventing, but they're always commissioning reports as to what we should do next, and it's actually helped to make the GA kind of the live modern organisation that the FAI wishes it was, for instance. Um, but I don't know, like, and I know there's arguments about the figures that I, honestly is, is too boring to go into. I think, but I just. And Mick Foley also makes the point that this doesn't have a driving figurehead like Sean Kelly with Rule 42, Porrick Duffy with the Super 8, Eugene McGee with the black card. Mm. So maybe I, I took that as a reason why maybe this won't pass. But uh, I don't know. Like we can't like the, the status quo is a farce. Like it's not worked for the vast number of players out there. And if this isn't passed, like are, are we looking at an inevitability of players and administrators in open warfare, like uh, well, just, that's just, just to come back to what you were saying there, Gavin. Obviously, yes, thirty-two is a brilliant number. So you divide them up to four eights. That's option A, basically. And we've all just written it off. Option A, nobody is going for option A. Mm. It, it's it's the obvious solution, in some respects, to some of the problems. It allows the players to play for the All Ireland. Now it allows Wexford to play for the Munster Championship. You know, historically, are they interested in winning that? Not not for the last 134 years or whatever number. Would they get the hang of it after two or three years of maybe getting Kerry down to Wexford Park? They'd maybe get the hang of beating, of winning that match. Mm. But um, option A has just been blown out of the water. It's B or C, it seems to me. Option A is, yeah. is just going to be turn, turned out in, in, in a minute flat. Well... This day next week, we'll know. It's next Saturday and the papers will be full of it next week and I'd say things could get acrimonious. 80% of the GPA respondents wanted B, so yes, certainly but only the players... Ha- apparently only two-thirds of the, GA respond- of the GPA responded. But your half of them wouldn't be even reading the proposals. No, no. No, they're no. not interested. It's boring. Like, yeah, yeah. A number of high-profile players have been asked about this after club matches and a lot of them have said, oh, I haven't really looked too much into it. Yeah, yeah well, you were so. supposed to vote on it a while ago there. Uh, so let's go for something totally different FAI to put faith in Kenny with new contract this is Paul Rowan I know you're writing about this issue as well John and Gav I know you're all over this generally so I'm sure you're interested so this is Paul Rowan uh, he starts with the opening line barring a disaster against Luxembourg so that's key barring a disaster against Luxembourg next month Stephen Kenny will be given licence to thrill in the form of a new contract to lead Ireland into the UEFA Nations League next year and 2024 European Championships. So it seems the FAI won't wait around until his contract actually expires in July. If things go well next month, new contract on the table, signed, sealed, and I guess uh, vote of confidence in the manager ahead of the Nations League. Uh, he goes on to write, Paul Rowan, that uh, FAI's leadership were in Baku last week and were not only impressed 
by the results, but by what they saw behind the scenes about the way the new manager, sorry, the new manager, by the way the manager and players conducted themselves in training elsewhere, which has only strengthened the resolve to stick with Kenny. And incidentally, the bla- Blazers behaved themselves as well, adds uh, Paul Rowan. <laughs> and uh, he does finish at another stage by saying, FAI director Packy Bonner, who would not have dared to even roll the ball out to a teammate during Jack Charlton's time in charge, is said to be a key decision maker in Kenny's future. And even he might agree with uh, Barry Murphy's view. This is, um, sorry, excuse me, Barry Murphy, who is quoted as saying earlier on in the piece. It's Brian Barry Murphy, Joe, who's saying that it's important for a goalkeeper to be able to play out from the back. Yes, sorry. Uh, He might agree with Barry Murphy's view that there is now no no other way forward, uh, which is what um, Barry Murphy is saying about Kenny. Kenny looks like the man to lead Ireland in a new direction. So... That's in the Sunday Times. Uh, Shane McGrath's writing about this in the Mail as well, this issue. And John, you're writing about it yeah. in the Sunday World. I think you're, uh, John, I would say you're largely in agreement with the FAI board that if things go well against Luxembourg, then fair enough. Those five go. first words you used, bearing a disaster against Luxembourg, they are key for Stephen. It's easily measurable. I've been covering Ireland International since 1984. The very first one I did was a scoreless draw, which set the tone for much of what was to follow. But losing to Luxembourg at home in a competitive match was the nadir. We've never been worse. We've drawn with Liechtenstein away. We drew. We didn't lose. We lost to Luxembourg. If Stephen can get a good result against Luxembourg, beat them, he can then turn around and say, well, look what I've done in the last five months since we lost to Luxembourg at home. Look what I've done. I won't criticise him if Portugal do a number on us with the class they have. One guy we've been talking about already, they can do a number on any team in the world. Yeah, I won't judge Stephen on that. We played bloody well against Portugal in Faro. But Luxembourg, you can judge him on. And if we win that match 1-0, 2-0, well then I think Stephen, yeah, set fair. If we lose that game, a lot of people are going to say, what's been going on for the last five months? Mm. Brian Barry Murphy, by the way, now managing Man City's under-23s. I meant to mention that, so he's going very well in the game. Mm. Gav, I would put it to you, uh, this team was in a very fragile state in March when Luxembourg came to Dublin and Ireland played dreadfully and played into Luxembourg's hands repeatedly, not least in possession, trying to build out from the back and repeatedly failing to beat the Luxembourg press. They're in a very different place now, I would put it to you. Yeah, there's been a lot more uh, variation in what they've been doing. Uh, A couple of days after that game against Luxembourg, uh, they went and played a friendly in Qatar and changed the formation a little bit. This not to get too boring on it, but three, four, two, one, and that's it's been on a kind of an upward trajectory since then. There's been a couple of blips. We may remember Andorra won, Ireland nil was on a scoreboard in June for a while, and the the home draw against Azerbaijan was poor. Although you know if Callum Robinson was playing, was fit to start that game. Ireland probably would have won it, I think. Uh, but everything has been upwards since then. There's been a lot more variation in how they play. Um, the players, the players really do seem thrilled at the level of coaching that they're getting. So uh, I would, uh, I would say that things are looking pretty good for Stephen Kenny in terms of that contract extension. Yeah, John. Even taking the opposition into account to an extent, although Azerbaijan, um, you know, average enough, and Qatar. I mean, it's the same Qatar side that we drew one all with and weren't as good. You've been covering the team a long time. Take the Qatar performance at home. It's a long time since an Irish side took a team apart with that kind of swagger. Very long time. Yeah, yeah. 38 passes in one move. Yeah. Jack Charlton probably never had 38 passes in his entire career as Irish manager, had he? Yeah. But, yeah, that, it was fabulous. It looked good. 
Qatar are ranked ahead of us in the world rankings and the FIFA rankings at the moment. I don't know how they got there because they haven't been playing competitive matches. No, but they've, uh, they've been playing a lot of matches. They're playing a lot of friendly matches which don't count for as many points. Mm. So it's harder to make progress up the FIFA rankings. They've had some good results. They played in the Copa America last year and only lost 1-0 to Argentina who had Messi and all their stars aboard. Mm. So they are better than they looked last week. Did we make them look poor? Yes. Because um, quite often we make poor teams look better than they are. Yes, this that's was a nice change. Like I genuinely, I, I've asked a few people because we've all seen every Ireland game basically as long as we've all been alive. That's yeah. just where we are with Ireland. I can't think of Ireland taking a team apart with that kind of swagger. Yeah, yeah. For a long time, they're funny. Although it ended very poorly, Steve Staunton's first match we hockeyed Sweden three nil. Yeah, but it wasn't. <laughs> it wasn't. It wasn't like this. Liam Miller got rest him scored yeah, a great, yeah, goal, great goal. Great goal that night. Yeah, it wasn't like this. It wasn't that we were completely in control of the thing. I um, I would I would just be, just be a little bit worried for Stephen for that one match because it's measurable because it's simply yeah. measurable, and if he wins it one nil, even one nil. 2-0, 3-0, if he wins it, mm. he can then say, now look at the difference I have adapted, I've learned, the players are learning. The one thing about the Nations League, I thought it was very ballsy of him. Some people criticised him. I thought it was very strong of him to come out and say, we want to win our group because it guarantees us a playoff. Mm. Uh, it doesn't actually, UEFA haven't linked them, but they will eventually. Um, I, I was very pleased to hear that. He knew, of course, the Nations League structure is you don't get a France or Germany in your group. He's not going to walk into that. Mm. So he's going to play teams around us and he was setting the team a target. The one thing for next year for the team, for the players who seem to be behind him, seem to be with him, is we have no competitive World Cup or Euro qualifier match in the next calendar year. It's a long time. Our next comp- we, we play these two World Cup games in November our next Euro qualifier is March 2023. It's a long time to keep the lads motivated, coming to Ireland for matches, going abroad when your club is saying, ah, here, son, hold on a minute now, you've got an old hamstring there, now hold on, hold on. It was a good, I think it was a good move by Kenny to set the players a target. Right, lads, I trust you. We're going out, we're going to draw Slovenia, Slovakia, we're going to draw whoever we draw, and we're going to go out and we're going to win that group. I think that was a nice move on his part. Yeah, I also uh, I, Gav, suspect yeah. he was uh, reframing things, as in my contract is not open November. Everyone. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. I think there was an element of tactics about it as well, to be honest. Uh, but I'd agree with John. Like he's very, very brave. Like now, look, brave is usually the first line of a manager's obituary <laughs> after he's gone. But well, he was very uh, brave. <laughs> no, so yeah. Do you not remember Sir Humphrey? That would be a brave thing to do, <laughs> Minister. <laughs> But yeah, like I'm, uh, but uh, but just to yeah to build on that, like it would be a brave decision or a courageous decision for an FAI board member not to renew his contract now. Under to uh, refer to the same show as John is that courageous decisions are ones that lose elections. Uh, but uh, no, he's been very brave and he's done the job entirely on his own terms. Like he's not flinched from anything. He's surrounded himself with his own staff. He insisted to be able to do that. He's generally stuck to his principles, although it showed a little bit more variation within them since the Luxembourg game. And he was very upfront. He didn't have to answer that question about the Nations League. It was a really softball question that was thrown at him. How far can this team go was the question. Okay. There's a very easy out on that, but he uh, he committed to that for a very specific reason. I would say partly it's to uh, 
to remind the uh, to remind the public debate around this, shall we say, that uh, if he's going to win a Nations League a group, he'll have to be in charge for all six games, and his contract only currently covers the first four. Mm. Uh, but yeah, it's uh, it's a boldness and a braveness uh, in public in uh, in public candor that we don't often see from Ireland managers. There was one thing I liked last week, Joe. It was in last week's Underworld. We're supposed to be reviewing this week's, but few people picked up on it. Out in Azerbaijan, we're winning two 0 at half time. Away game, qualifier, he's under a bit of pressure, he's winning 2-0. You come in, you bring the team in, you leave well enough alone. No, he didn't. He dropped Daryl Horgan. He took him off, gave him the hook in the dressing room. He was probably, as I said in my piece, the only Irish player in that first half who wasn't heading for a 7 or an 8. He had given the ball away a few times. You could see Callum Robinson was getting frustrated, even though he scored twice. You could see he was getting frustrated with Daryl's movement, that it wasn't always, they weren't on the wavelength. And Kenny took him off. Now, he's an extant dock player. He was with Steve and he won leagues, he won cups here. But he was ruthless. Yeah. A manager needs to be ruthless. And I think that also sent a message to the dressing room. Look, I'm here to win. We're winning 2-0, but that guy there, he's just not in the ball. I'm not risking him giving away a ball. They break on us and it's 2-1. Hmm. Off, Jamie McGrath's on. Do something different, son. Yeah. I thought that showed a degree of ruthlessness in Kenny that I just hadn't seen. Like, I know he's had problems with COVID. He's had players sitting on the wrong seats. He's had players injured. He's, he's had all sorts of things. But he more or less had his gang there last week, except for Seamus Coleman. And suddenly, when he's winning 2-0 at halftime in an away match, he says, off. Yeah. You know, strong. That was strong. Pages 8 and 9 of the Sunday Times deal with the Saudi Arabia Newcastle situation. By the way, just to, uh, and Jonathan Northcroft does it here, just to put the wealth of this PIF into context, they've taken over at Newcastle, obviously. They are worth 320 billion. That's 14 times more than Sheikh Mansour over at Man City. 14 times richer. So uh, that puts it into context. John Norcroft starts off, it's a brilliant intro because he talks about his first experience of St. James's Park and they were in the old second division. Fans incredible. He says, the singing is what I remember. And then in a brilliant about turn, which you know is coming somewhere in the piece, but he goes, the singing is what I remember. And music is one of the most haunting details in the murder of Jamal Khashoggi. So we're straight into that. He says that Turkish intercepts from within the Saudi consulate in Istanbul show that uh, the doctor who was uh, allegedly responsible for dismembering Khashoggi with a bone saw, he was telling colleagues that he liked musical accompaniment and cups of coffee while cutting up bodies. So that's how you go from music at St. James's Park to music to cutting up bodies. And he says this doctor was part of the 15-man, quote, kill squad that executed Khashoggi because he wrote articles in the Washington Post that were critical of the Crown Prince Mohammed bin Salman. And uh, apparently the 15-man kill squad flew home to Saudi Arabia on two private jets belonging to their country's public investment fund. And it's the public investment fund, obviously, who've taken over at Newcastle. Uh, some Turkish sources who've heard intelligence recordings of the execution suggest that Khashoggi was still alive when the doctor began sawing him apart. And while Mohammed bin Salman always denied it, the CIA and United Nations have concluded it's likely he either ordered or had foreknowledge of the journalist's demise. And so they now own 80% of the club, and uh, Northcroft goes on to talk about, this is just a difficult one for journalists. So he says, I'm very struggling, I'm very much struggling on this front. He says, I'll go to the Qatar World Cup, but refrain from writing pieces that fluff up the image of uh, the Qatari regime, for instance, having taken a similar approach in Russia with City, 
uh, given Abu Dhabi's record in human rights, I write about the brilliant football, but have expressed my qualms about the ownership. I do not ask for player interviews, nor want to be in on backdoor briefings. I'm not criticizing any journalist who does, but I prefer not to be involved. And uh, I mean, he makes the point of PIF from Saudi Arabia. They already have stakes in Uber, Facebook, Disney, and nobody else, Khashoggi, when you get a taxi, log on to social media or take the kids to Frozen 2. And these are the kind of arguments that the Newcastle fans are uh, coming up with, uh, pointing to others and also pointing to other businesses in Saudi Arabia. Uh, Graeme Soon is writing about it as well, Gavin, but it's um, it's a strong piece on Northcroft's part. And uh, Graeme Soon, in fairness, comes out and uh, gives it both barrels as well to Saudi Arabia. Uh, this is uh, this Soon's column is great. Um, to, he, he talks about the Rainbow Laces campaign and the Premier League and English football's campaign for diversity and inclusion and says allowing a Saudi government funded investment vehicle to own a Premier League club is a two fingered salute to all of that. Mm. Um, uh, he says, yet the more foreign money that flows in, the closer Premier League comes edges to moral bankruptcy. Um, and just as a kind of uh, an illustration of how far through the looking glass we've gone on this, we get some kind of Gulf geopolitical equivalency halfway through a Graham Sunes column. Cards on the table, I've worked in the past for the Qatari owner B in sports and that Gulf state, that Gulf state is not exactly a hotbed of liberalism. But when you put Qatar's contravention of human rights alongside those committed by the Saudis, it's like comparing a championship side with a top four club, which just goes to emphasize how distorted and how grotesque this now is. Like, I just hope that Mike Ashley didn't quote uh, the Saudis uh, a price of an arm and a leg for the club because they are the only regime mm. likely to take that uh, in a literal sense. And like to talk about, like to, for as Northcraft alludes to some of the arguments that, oh, you know, uh, PIF have, have a stake in Uber and Facebook and Disney. They're businesses. And the whole point of Newcastle fans' uh, retaliations against Mike Ashley was that a football club is not a business that it's a social enterprise that's meant to represent the community of which it's part. So, no, you can't, you can't really have it both ways on, on, that, uh, on, that, uh, on that front. And I know people will say, well, it's not Newcastle fans' fault that they've been bought by the PIF, and it's not. And it's, it's a difficult, like, ha- like, how do you tell a, a fan how to act? Because it, it's, very, like, it's not, technically not their fault that this has happened. But it's just like the genie's been out of the bottle since... Spurs were floated on the stock market, the stock exchange back in the 1980s, and the end point of the of the total lack of regulation and the insane money that is poured into the game is this, mm. and it's just uh, it's grotesque. And just uh, there was one quite funny moment in this Sunes column. He's former Newcastle manager, of course. He says that they might struggle to get uh, the elite of the game to the northeast of England. So says this may sound crazy. But I wonder if they should move their training base near London, hmm. um, which seems silly on the uh, silly as I read it. But then you realise just how unmoored these clubs have come hmm. from their community and what, what they represent. That it actually wouldn't make a blind bit of difference. No, I did like, by the way, he did go uh, back towards a football analogy to explain the human rights difference. I mean, uh, <laughs> heaven, heaven forbid, I just uh, just say it as it is. I need to explain to the football fans mm. championship and top four. That's that, that way you'll understand. And he's, how he, English though is the Premier League anymore? How many English clubs are owned by British people? I'd say next to none. Is it? Well, Norwich. Yeah. Who probably won't be in the Premier League for much longer. Yeah. I think there's four. I, I think I went through them once and there's four. Uh, and that's about the height of it. Contrast that with uh, Germany, where all the clubs must be owned by 
in Germany. Yeah. There's a couple in Italy, one or two in France. There's PSG, or sorry, PSG in France, one or two in Spain. Uh, most of the Portuguese clubs, the Dutch clubs, are owned by fans or by Portuguese. The Premier League just seems to have sold out. Mm. It's not. A, it's the English Premier League because it's played in England, but that's about the height of it. it all the clubs are owned by Americans, by by Asian investors, by now by Middle Eastern investors. Uh, they've just sold out. The, and what Gavin is talking about there, there is a massive disconnect. Like if Newcastle are serious about signing some really, really top players from Spain or Portugal or France or whatever, they better move that training ground to London. They are not going to move to Newcastle. Yeah. I mean, really the issue here is the Premier League's dereliction of duty. The lack of regulation is astonishing. And like Northcroft makes that point as well when, you know, he says that um, the surreal dance performed by the Premier League was performed in approving the buyout by ruling that despite the PIF being chaired by Mohammed bin Salman and run by one of his closest advisors, Newcastle's new uh, non-executive chairman, it is accepted legally binding assurances that the Kingdom of Saudi will not control the club. Now, come on. Do you know what I mean? That like, they, the Kingdom of Saudi will not control this club is the assurance they've accepted. Rubbish. It's yeah. just, uh, it's, well, it's willful uh, delusion on their part. They don't really care the Premier League is the, is the point. Well, let, let's go back. As one Liverpool fan said to me years and years ago, he said, only Liverpool could be owned by an American guy called Gillette who never made a razor blade in his life. Those two guys, do you remember him, George Gillette? What's the other guy? Hicks. Hicks. Did no money. Yeah. Did no money. They were just doing it on a wing and a prayer. A few Bob borrowed at the bank, flip it in a year. They didn't give a... They probably never knew where Liverpool was on a map. Mm. I'm a Leeds fan. Only Leeds could have been owned by a Bahraini who didn't even own one barrel of oil. He didn't. He was just trying the same stunt. Borrow it with a quick bit of money, flip it in a year for 20% more, Mm. and you've made a nice profit. But... Who checks on these guys before? Like, the genie is out of the bottle. Uh, as, as Jonathan said, this is just the height of it. And Gavin says, this is just the end. And it, it's hard to think how the bar can be raised any higher than this. Yeah. But the problem was the bar was set so low by selling to American investors and other investors who hadn't got a red rex between them. Mm. I do like uh, the way Sunis's piece talks about Middle Eastern politics here in, in wonderful football terms. So he says, uh, <laughs> the Saudis regard themselves as top dog in the Middle East and will view uh, knocking their Abu Dhabi neighbours Man City off their per- perch as key to bragging rights in the region <laughs> when they go to work the next morning. <laughs> you can print that. Uh, just amazing, amazing <laughs> you, ha- you have to remember Joe Graham is the guy who what planted the Galatasaray flag at the centre circle in Fenerbahce's pitch yeah. which is akin to Celtic v Rangers I just adore the thought of bragging rights in the morning over in the Middle East there when they knocked them off their perch I mean, well do you uh, notice it, we're watching Ireland we're watching Stephen Kenny but of course World Cup qualifying is going on all around the world Saudi Arabia are in a brilliant position to qualify for Qatar out in the Asian qualifying. There's a long way to go, Mm. but at the moment they're in a brilliant position. They do not want to miss out on that World Cup. Their players are probably being put up against the wall and told, qualify or else, because they do not want to let little Qatar, Qatar is only about the size of County Loud, isn't it? Uh, They do not want to let them host the World Cup without them being there. So, uh, plant a flag of their own, maybe after. A well, now, well, Sunis has a gr- great history of doing it, he knows how it's done. Um, yeah, sorry, a uh, couple yeah, of no. quick s- stories just because time is going to come against us because we picked out a bunch again. There's loads of great stuff in the papers today. Gav, you can take your pick here because there are quite a few. There's Aidan O'Mahony in the Sunday Independent, which is a uh, great read. He's got a new book out. Uh, Mickey Hart, there's a new Mickey Hart, Hart book out as well, and his 
I guess the, the journalist who worked with Brennan Coffey in conjunction with the book, he writes the piece on the experience of working with Hart here. Uh, Gillian Quinn, wife of Niall, has uh, launched a big study into the divorce rate in footballers when they retire. And then there's Bryony Frost and Robbie Dunn, which is a big story in the Sunday Times, allegations of bullying and intimidation there. So, um, And the BHA are, are uh, launching proceedings against Robbie Dunn. So where do you want to go to there? There's quite a few pieces. Uh, I'll, le- I'll leave the David Walsh piece because it just needs to be read. Yeah. There's no point us so pining on it on air, on air but it, it's it's must-read stuff. It, it's absolutely fantastic. The Gillian Quinn piece was really interesting with Paul Rowan. She's doing a PhD study into why so many players get divorced after they finish retiring. Like the, She says the PFA stats are that one in three ex-players divorce within the first year of retirement, and that escalates to three out of four within three years. So out of a starting team of 11, eight will be divorced within three years. It's extraordinary. So that sounds really interesting stuff. And I'm, hopefully that will get published in somewhere that we can read it. It sounds really interesting. And there's another little tiny nugget that's interesting in uh, Paul Rowan's piece that Niall is at university studying Irish history yeah. and doing some GA coaching. Now. So uh, I'd, love to, uh, I'd love to speak to him about that at some point. He, uh, he has a good insight into Irish politics, having worked with the FAI. So maybe Irish history is the next, uh, no, no, is the next addendum to that. Sports politics, Gavin, are way above the real thing. They, they are the ultimate blood sport, sport but- politics. There's a there's an old quote by Charlie McCreevy who said that he would have all of his cabinet ministers serve six months as the CEO of the FBI to understand what politics are really like. Yeah. Uh, so. uh, she, by the way, says even at their own marriage how listless Niall felt after retirement and he was in no man's land and it's not like you can go back and see the teammates and didn't know what to do. And she says he was miserable. There were periods when we were not wanting to continue in the marriage and uh, obviously they've come through that and work through it but uh, yeah it sounds like it'd be fascinating it, it story just, I, another guy retiring or not retiring but he left the WhatsApp group obviously because he was finished Jim Gavin said I contacted the lads I told them I was retiring and I just clicked the WhatsApp group and that was the end of it but Jim went on to his work imagine the day you retire as a footballer mm. you put your boots in your bag you walk out you click the WhatsApp group and you're off it you're retired and that's it well she said like I mean they're used to knowing where they're going to be basically for the next year every day every day fixtures come out they know what the next year is and you go to zero then just nothing bang stops and knowing most footballers the footballers with degrees and the footballers with some sort of qualifications are the ones we write the stories about oh look he's actually qualified to be this 99% of them have absolutely nothing except brilliant skill in their feet Mm. and suddenly they're just left standing there what do I do Mm. And the wife suffers and the kids maybe suffer and all sorts no, of... It's, it's a recipe. You couldn't design a better recipe for disaster. For disaster. Right? They're all personal. Your own mind would be fried. Yeah. Like, it's hard. It, <laughs> I wonder how Jim Gavin felt when he clicked that WhatsApp thing. But he went back to his job the following Monday morning. A busy man, yeah. Busy man. But, yeah, yeah but, it, like, that's not for professional footballers. No. Uh, Gav, so that's Gillian Quinn. Where do you want to go? Mm. Just briefly on, on the piece of Mickey Harris written by his, his ghostwriter Brendan Coffey in the Sunday Indo. Um, really interesting way of, of doing it rather than doing an interview with Harris, allow the ghostwriter uh, write his opinion. And, you know, it's going to be very interesting. I know, is this the third book that, that Mickey yeah. Harris has done? But um, just I, I found it's kind of loosely related to what we were just talking about, about relationships when, when uh, Mickey is quoted about how he and his wife came to terms. Like, how do you ever come to terms with it after the death of Michaela? Um, but he says that the grieving process is slow 
And I found this quite profound that like mother and father would grieve at a different rate almost if, um, and says, I was I was further along and the gap between us put a strain in our relationship. I'm told it's not uncommon for marriages to break up following the death of a child. I can understand how that could happen. Frustration builds if your spouse is in a different place psychologically, yet at the same time, you cannot demand that they progress at your pace. So I found that I found that really quite profound. And it's just there's. There's so much uh, in it across the papers uh, today. Yeah, there really is. It's Brendan Coffey who's worked on this new Mickey Hart book called Devotion. And again, as you said, it's kind of a different angle to get the ghostwriter on to talk about the experience as opposed to interviewing Mickey Hart himself. Like he talks about their routine. He says uh, every morning, a Eucharistic adoration. Uh, his days often began before first light. We would meet 6.45 a.m. St. Malachy's Chapel. I'd uh, wake half six, drive down from Kelly's. That was where he used to stay when uh, he was working on the book with Mickey Hart to be greeted by Mickey's headlights in the chapel yard situated next to his original family home. Uh, Mickey felt like he was walking into history each time he set foot in the 200-year-old chapel. Uh, For me, that scene provided a glimpse into his history. I was experiencing a principal part of his world. At that hour, we had the church to ourselves. Winter mornings challenging the cold in your bones. Spring mornings, you could hear nature in full voice. That time in reflection left me feeling refreshed as if silencing some of my own internal noise, writes Brendan. And uh, he talks about how after that, Mickey would uh, lead the way up the road and they'd go work on the book. His car registration caught my eye one morning when we were parked out the back of Kelly's. The plate read M11CMA. The C stood for Kayla, how she was known at home. MA was for McCreevy and M11 given the year of her death. That plate told me so much about him maybe more than any other question I could have asked. Before we started working the book, I only knew about the man. I was a stranger to him, so I started from a long way off. Only time and attention could help me bridge that gap. So that's Brennan Coffey there on page 14 of the Sunday Independent. Uh, Aidan O'Mahony is a book out as well. Uh, uh, an extraordinary interview with Dermot Crow, uh, Stripped Bear on the Road to Inner Peace. So O'Mahony, five All-Irelands, brilliant footballer, I didn't know much about Aidan O'Mahony, I have to say, uh, down the years. I don't know, did you get much from no, him, John? But it seems like nobody got much from him for a lot of his career. No, he, was, he wasn't one of the more valuable of that Kerry team. We knew he was a guard, and that was about the height of it. He was a, he was a, a quiet enough guy in that sense of, well, you don't ring any of them for interviews anymore, but uh, he, he talked very little, but he, he clearly has a story to tell now. It, it's amazing how, because GA managers don't contract their players, they can't threaten them with loss of wages they can't do it. they go on with all this control of the controllables thing and control the, the only controllable they control is their access to the media and I don't see how if Aidan O'Mahony wanted to tell his story 10 years ago when he was still cornerback for Kerry how it would have made a blind bit of difference to him as a footballer mm. but managers and county boards and everyone else just they seem to think that if you if you tell the story Aidan is telling now when you're a player that somehow it'll show weakness next year. I, I, I don't get it. I don't get it at all. Yeah, to be fair, it doesn't sound like he was ready to tell this story when he was a player. Or yeah, and I'm, there are plenty of others who would be a different example who would have been ready. Aidan has probably gone on a journey through his life. And Seems that way, yeah. Since retirement and stuff like that. But um, he, he hit, and again, I mean, it's like Keith Earls, Gav, it's like... I mean, it's rare actually hear a sports person these days talk and their mental health hasn't been in a dark place at some point or other. Mm. He talks, like there were a couple of different things in the build-up to 2010 where he hit rock bottom. There was uh, an incident with Dunnock O'Connor of Cork where O'Mahony went down very theatrically and Mm -hmm. O'Connor sent off. 
Omani had a tough time. He said, I was embarrassed. I was embarrassed. I embarrassed my family and talked about, you know, in Cork, even as a guard, people would say things to him for a long time. And then the second thing was when the inhaler salbutamol test came back and uh, he was cleared of any deliberate wrongdoing or attempt to enhance performance, but the controversy raged for long enough to leave him sinking into a place crammed with negative feelings. He said, it absolutely floored me. I didn't like talking about it. It's like uh, zipping up a jacket, keeping it all in, and there's no way of explaining to people because they make up their own mind anyway. And he talks about just getting into a rut, be watching TV at home, start crying for no reason, being a very closed person. Like he said, people would have conversations with me and think, Jesus, he's an odd character. You know, because he just, he struggled to open up to anyone, to teammates, just um, a natural introvert, he describes him as. And hit a point, Gav, where... Uh, things were serious and he went away for uh, six weeks to, um, well, I guess, uh, some kind of a, a retreat for people struggling with their mental health. And uh, he says over the six weeks, his mind, this is Dermot Crow, his mind was allowed to empty itself of much of the anxiety. He says, I saw it fairly quick where I'd gone to, like the smallest thing, putting your head in a pillow at 10 o'clock at night and being able to sleep without having to think about something was probably one of the best things I've experienced in my life. And uh, he says, six weeks, a long time in your life where there's no contact with the outside world. You go in with the barrier and then slowly you bring it down and you start seeing light. And all of a sudden you're thinking, what was I worrying about there for the last 15 years? Why was I worrying what people thought about me? Or why was I letting negative negativity into my mind? I had an awkward personality anyway. Like if you came up to me for a conversation and found I was mute, it was very annoying because you'd say this guy should be a bit more open. And it wasn't a case that I had airs or graces. I never had. Maybe that came across because I was so dark and so into myself. But now he seems in a good place and he's happy and he's 42 and two children and uh, in Tralee Garda Station. But uh, that six weeks, Gav, seems like it was mm. absolutely crucial and like he almost was like an onion and layer by layer it came off. Yeah, you're not meant to judge a book by its cover, Joe, but judge this one by its cover because it's of Aidan O'Mahony uh, at the at full at the full time whistle of his final game in a carry jersey with a tear trickling down his eye, and I think that kind of encapsulates seems to encapsulate the the story of Aidan O'Mahony's journey that he, that he uh, gets across in this interview with with Dermot Crow. Just the acceptance that you can be vulnerable and it's okay not to be okay. Effectively, he talks about there's a massive weight on my shoulders. But now, now he now he's able to recognise that it was a weight I was willing to take because I felt I was bulletproof that I didn't need help. And what helped him in the uh, what helped him in that counselling service for six weeks in care uh, that I wasn't going around thinking who is listening here now. It was irrelevant, you know. So it, it just goes to show how. You know, sport, and I, I'd imagine Gaelic football and Kerry in, in more places than most is so bound up with uh, with approval. Like, I mean, a lot of a lot of young men who grow up in Ireland uh, saying that's the main way of gaining approval. And I think that, that then it sets up a kind of an uncomfortable reliance on, on what other people uh, um, perceive of you. So I think that the, yeah. when people talk about inner peace, I think that's what Aidan O'Mahony has uh, has got here. And I think it's summed up with the line, when you put on that Kerry jersey, it's like you're putting on that cape like a superhero and you are like a wimp because the superhero is the guy who can be honest and can be open. Yeah. He describes, uh, John, the scene in 2010. So it's midway through the league campaign. He pulls out of the Kerry training trip to Portugal. And uh, he says, the, the morning I went to Ashery, that's the... Um, the um, institution that was helping with his mental health. He says, my parents cried in the kitchen. It was tough to see. My dad, I'd never seen cry. That was a tough morning getting into that car, going on a journey and his sister uh, drove him. Uh, people talk about depression and stuff, having really bad days. Everyone has depression for a day or a week. Jesus Christ, when I got into bed at nighttime, I'd still be looking up at the wall at four in the morning and saying, why is this happening? 
It's hard going, isn't it? Yeah, but it's interesting that just on one Sunday morning in the newspapers, we've seen two well-known Irish sportsmen. uh, One of them getting well paid for it, fair juice to him. One of them completely amateur, Mm. and it has driven them to the same dark place. Both of them, yeah, Uh, just very different. We we sometimes put our sports heroes up on a pedestal and say, "Oh, look, aren't he? Isn't she great?" And they're not. Yeah. yeah. No, it is. It, it, it was very striking this morning. Almost every piece you read, it's there was some language. negativity. Or, oh, yeah. yeah, hugely so. Yeah. Hugely so. Except for Graeme Souness planting the flag. No, <laughs> negati- no negativity there, Joe. No, no, no. <laughs> um, as Gav says, you really should read the Bryony Frost, Robbie Dunn piece in the yeah. Sunday Times. Extraordinary details there in that piece. We don't quite have time to get into it. And like Gav says, it's not really something we can give much opinion on because we weren't there, but certainly serious allegations denied by Robbie Dunn and it seems like the BHA are going to get involved now and uh, he's going to be called to a hearing. So um, that's on page 14 and a little glimpse into maybe the alleged intimidation in the um, jockey's room over and, and how emotions run high, especially when horses are put down and all that kind of stuff was going on so uh, that's there on page 14 of the Sunday Times fellas we are out of time Gavin Cooney from the 42 thanks so much Gav appreciate it oh thanks Joe and John Brennan of the Sunday World thanks for coming to the studio John. Joe enjoy it. much yeah. yeah thanks a million that's us we're back next week